The king gave one last horking snore and sat bolt upright. His eyes snapped open, one dark, one cloudy, and fixed the runaway with a glare that was all fire and spiders and poison. And in that moment, he was snared. The magpie said something, but he didn't hear it. He was entranced by the cloudy white evil of the king's dead eye. The foundlings threw him to the ground and dragged him across the dirty floor toward the throne. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode. Happy New Year. I hope you had a refreshing holidays. I certainly did, and I am excited to be jumping back in for another set of episodes. If you missed last episode, I will have a link to the full playlist down in the episode description, so make sure to check that out there. And if you're just looking for a refresher on where we are in the story, I am hoping in the next couple of days to upload a couple of short recap videos to the channel just to give you a sense of where we are in the story. All right, that's enough from me. I'll catch you at the end of the episode. I'm Josh Call, and this is Last Coliseum. The prince had left behind his tarnished crown. He did it in the blackest hour on the blackest night, when the one-eyed king's snores were all a thunder, and the other foundlings were fast and faster sleeping. He ran like mad, like a blue river, his whole past littering the hall behind him like glass shards. He took only the bruises on his arms and the anger in his heart, and a sack of treasures filched from the raven's trove. And, of course, the girl. He'd never leave without his cat's eye queen, she who the tatty prince had burned for since before he knew what burning meant. It was his idea to run, but it was she who snaked the treasure right from under the king's fat nose. Her feet splashed after him through the winding corridors, chasing their echo toward life, toward hope, toward freedom. Laughter bubbled out of him like birdsong when at long last he broke out into the up above. Cat's eye burst out just behind him, and they both fell laughing to the ground. Her face was wet, with sweat or happy tears, he couldn't say which. She was, without question, the most lovely thing he'd ever set his eyes on. It was a long while before they got up, but when they did, her hand slipped into his. His pulse quickened, and his soul shouted throaty praises to the god of men. He turned his head from her, lest she see the bright flush staining red his cheeks. They found a clever nook to hide their treasure. They had to be wise, the princeling told her. They had a whole life to buy with what was in that sack. Then they parted ways, whispering promises to meet before the hour at the secret place of secret places. He'd stolen before. Of course he had. It was the king's decree that all the foundlings beneath his wing should know a trade. By day, they crept into the city of men and took whatever they could. At night, they laid their tribute before the king's inspecting eye, held prisoner by the milky magic one. Food and blankets and a place beside the fire for the ones who brought the best treasures, beatings and a rumbly belly for the ones who didn't. On this most moonless night, the runaway prince filched a stack of meat pies and a loaf of bread as long as your arm. Tucked in the crook of his elbow, he held a mixing bowl filled to the brim with whatever was beginning to congeal in the pot above the low-burning hearth. In his haste, he neglected to also steal spoons. But was it not for just this reason that God, in all his wisdom, gave men hands? 
On the mantle, he left a bauble as payment for what he'd taken, a tiny ivory sculpture carved in the shape of a horse and rider. The knight challenged him silently with raised sword as the thief slipped ghost-like into the night. He found Cat's Eye waiting for him at the secret place of secret places, kicking her legs out over the empty, a million miles straight down to hard-packed death. Beside her, there was a dusty glass bottle so dark a red it was almost black, and two little wood cups. She proffered one. The princeling gagged at the first sour taste, but it was warm on the back of his throat, and Cat's Eye quaffed deep without so much as a flinch. He drained his cup and went for a second. That night, they drank on blood and black currants beneath a moonless sky, and ate, ate, ate until their stomachs were bursting. He stood up after a fashion, his belly full and head light, the dark wine tingling in his fingertips. Her eyes, of the palest yellow, followed him as he stumbled over to the clever nook and peeled back the tile to uncover their hoard. He shuffled back to her with something small clenched in his fist. He kept his eyes low when he gave it to her. It was a ring. He'd found it wedged in a crack between two broken flagstones a few moons back, small and plain and silver, set with a piece of jet that did not sparkle, for Cat's Eye was not the sort who fancied sparkle. It fit her perfectly. What is it? she asked him. Starlight and promise, he told her, the black paint of nightfall. His gaze still trained on a spot between his bare feet, he explained that he never meant it for the magpie. From the moment he saw it, it was only ever meant for her. She was frowning. He asked her why. Arms crossed, she told him that if she'd known he was giving her a gift, she'd have gotten something to give him in return. He told her it was just a silly trinket, and besides, he didn't need anything except she stayed him, her hand upraised. Her eyes went bright. At once she was over the rooftop and down to the cobbles, never breaking her stride as she called back up at him to stay there, she'd be right back. And she was. It wasn't a moment before he heard the patter of her feet, her ragged breath as she clambered back up to the secret place of secret places. Now it was Cat's Eye who held something clenched in her fist. It was a piece of river glass milky green and battered smooth, still wet and smelling of moss. What is it? he asked her. She frowned at it for a moment. Then she grinned and planted a soft kiss on it. With her back to him, she whispered something small and mighty into the green glass. When she gave him her face again, it was flushed. He asked what her gift was. A fairy scale, she told him, with a secret tucked inside. He asked her what the secret was. She told him it wouldn't be a very good secret if she told him, now would it? On that night, the princeling burned for her with a depth of feeling impossible to understand by one who is not eleven, only dimly remembered the way a stone will hold fleetingly onto its sun warmth as day gives way to dusk. When daylight found him, he was alone. It was the heat that roused him, late in the morning when the shadows had all crept back to the fringes. Noonday beat down its furious glare, and with thought thick and heavy in his head, 
he crawled over to the little Eve to shield his face from the daybright. He wasn't worried, not yet. Cat's Eye went where the wind took her. She'd be back before long, he assured himself. They had a whole life to buy. The future stretched out before them like an unmarked parchment. He wasn't hungry, but he swallowed a few salty mouthfuls of cold meat pie just the same, and as the day cooled and shadows again began their slow forward creep, he amused himself by tossing down crumbs for the crows that were gathering below. Before long, there was a whole flock of them. The street below was a writhing sea of beak and feather. Sometimes he rubbed at the smooth green river glass, wondering what secret it was she'd locked away inside. He didn't lose hope. Not yet. Cat's Eye was always late. Probably she'd gotten lost on the way back, he convinced himself. Probably she was on her way even now, arms laden with sweet fruits for them to sup on. Probably. Night came cold a bitter wind yowling in from the westerlands and the shrieking between the rooftops. It clawed through the princeling's tatters and set his teeth to chattering. He fought the temptation to reach for the warm bottle of blood wine, even for just the dregs. Instead, he ate what was left of the stale loaf and rubbed his piece of river glass like a totem. Once he almost lost it. He was passing it back and forth between his hands. He missed his catch, and it went skittering down the slope toward oblivion. He threw himself at the river glass and nearly tumbled over himself before he caught it. He lay there for a long time, mindless of the wind's hungry scrabble fingers, heart chasing and totem pressed against his mouth. He decided he couldn't be trusted with it. What would Cat's Eye say when she came back and found that he'd lost her secret? She'd never trust him again. He peeled back the tile in the clever nook. He meant to hide the river glass with the rest of their stolen treasures. But he didn't. The tile slipped from his grip and shattered in three red pieces. He stared into the dark bore of the nook, cold horror rising slowly from his toes. It was empty. It was only then that all the pieces fell together, Of course the magpie wouldn't let them go, not her, not Cat's Eye, least of all with their sack of stolen treasures. He'd come for them, come to take back what was his. Well, not the king himself. The magpie was much too proud and much too afraid of what lay beyond his stony hall. The up above was no place for a beggar, no place for a king, with their sun and sky and iron. The others, maybe. He could almost see the foundlings crouched over him in the small hours as night gave way to morning, could almost hear the muffled cry of Cat's Eye as they clapped a hand over her mouth and dragged her down, down, down to bear beneath the king's ugly vengeance, could almost smell the magpie's sour stench. And all the while, the runaway slept on. It made him sick. He had to go back, had to rescue her. He waited as long as he could, until the streets were empty and the night birds ceased their call. He waited until the dam in his breast was sure to burst, then he went down. The entrance to hell was behind a sweet shop. He slipped in without breathing, like a hand in a glove, following the secret ways he'd never told anyone, not even Cat's Eye. 
Dust and shadow met him like old friends. They took him by the hand and guided him silently along twisting corridors. Tucked into his belt, he carried a thin sliver of broken shingle, the fat end wrapped in twine. He'd lost his penny knife two turns back to a real flesh-and-feather raven. He wasn't sure what he'd do with it. He didn't have anything even close to a plan, but he was reassured by the hard clay weight of it against his thigh. He heard the king before he saw him. His snores thundered through the stone passages. They made his teeth rattle and set his hairs on end. An unpleasant, nervy feeling gurgled in the low parts of the princeling's gut. He wanted very much to turn back. But Katzai, he would not, could not leave without her. He pressed on. When he found the hall, it was lit by a few low-burning torches. The rest had guttered out in the night. The driftwood throne seemed almost to mock him as he padded into the chamber. Dust stayed with him. Mrs. Shadow kept watch along the periphery. Before it, the foundlings were huddled together like pups at the teat, a few of them squirming beneath the weight of nightmares, all of them asleep. And at the center, the gray dome of his belly gently rising and falling, both his eyes blessedly shut, the king, the magpie. The runaway's eyes passed over him almost without seeing, what he saw was the small, thin shape huddled next to him, one chestnut arm draped over the king's hoary chest. Cat's eye. He wanted to vomit. And if there had been anything in his belly but a few bites of stale bread, he might have. Instead, he stood stock still with salt tears burning on his cheeks. A small sound behind him. He turned and saw a tiny boy, no older than five, naked and filthy with a red rash on his belly. He'd gone into the corridor to do his necessaries. A huge grin broke across the boy's cheeks. He shouted the princeling's name and ran forward to embrace him. The runaway shushed him urgently, and the boy buried his face in his tatty shoulder. He peeled the little lad's arms from around his middle and tried for the corridor but already it was too late. The sleeping pile was beginning to stir. Foundlings were sitting up and rubbing their faces. The king gave one last horking snore and sat bolt upright. His eyes snapped open, one dark, one cloudy, and fixed the runaway with a glare that was all fire and spiders and poison. And in that moment, he was snared. The magpie said something, but he didn't hear it. He was entranced by the cloudy white evil of the king's dead eye. The foundlings threw him to the ground and dragged him across the dirty floor toward the throne. The sliver of tile that was his weapon shattered against the hard stone. Clay shards pierced his leg. Blood ran down his calf. It left a long red tentacle trailing in his wake. The old king's face was made of cobwebs. His teeth were rotted brown and bared in a snarl. The princeling stared up into the face of his father, willing away the fear that was quivering in his limbs. Why was he back? The king demanded. The runaway tried for speech, but he found none. After all the king had done for him, raised him as his own, and called him son. This was how he repaid him. And for what? The up above. What did she have for him, for any of them? Life as a street beggar, pleading for scraps. 
as a back-alley plow horse saddled by any mongrel with two coppers to rub together. Below he was a prince. The up above would spare him only spit. To punctuate this, he hacked a huge gobbet of thick brown phlegm. It hit the runaway on the cheek. Is that what he wanted? The raven croaked. He turned to the foundlings. Go on, he told them. Give him what he asked for. The princeling shuddered as they pelted him with spittle. He lowered his head to shield his face from the onslaught. Only Cat's Eye didn't spit at him. She stayed where she was behind the king, her yellow eyes downcast. When they were done, the old man reached out and tipped the runaway's head back. On his little finger there was a silver ring set with jet that did not sparkle. It was the same shade of black as the king's living eye, empty and fathomless. Get out, the magpie told him. He wanted to go, so go. The king would have no one in his court who didn't want to be there. Did they hear that? He turned to the others. Any of them who'd sooner be banished with the runaway, go and be gone. No one did. The princeling looked past the king as he said this. His eyes met Cat's eyes, pleading. She didn't move. Before he left, the old man growled, there was one more thing. The king slapped him, a hard cuff across the side of the face that sent him spinning to the floor. The ring on his little finger bit a straight, clean furrow on his cheek, just above his jawline. The exile lay there for a long while in a puddle of filth and blood and despair. The magpie towered over him, judgment burning in his one dark eye. Get out, he growled. And if he ever came back, the mad king whispered, he'd cut him apart and feed him to the rats. Thank you guys so much for listening. It really is a privilege to be able to share this story with all of you. I've had a couple of friends who have been asking me since episode one, when are we going to get to see the Taddy Prince again? So I hope you're happy. If you're catching this on Spotify, do me a favor and leave a five-star review. That really allows this story to reach as many people as possible. And if you're watching on YouTube, do me a favor and hit subscribe and the notification bell so you never miss an episode. That's enough from me. I'll catch you guys next week.